Okay. So welcome back to the ASIAL podcast. Today I am here with Dr. Lisa Warren. For those of you who missed out on uh, Dr. Warren's presentation at the ASIAL conference or Security 2019 this year, uh, Dr. Warren is a psychologist that specialises in insider threats. Dr. Warren, welcome to the program. Thank you very much. So tell me a little bit about your background. I am a clinical forensic psychologist where that basically just means I work with people who have uh, suffered a mental illness um, and I also work with people who have had some contact uh, with the law or who are at risk of, of, of uh, contact with the law. And your organisation is Code Black, so what is it that Code Black do? Code Black is a private sector threat management organisation where our work is in helping organisations deal with employees or customers uh, who are upset with them and engaging in problem behaviour that is harming themse the, the person themselves and those around them. Now, your presentation at the, uh, at the conference this year was around sort of um, detecting and working with insider threats, but I guess part of the premise that I want to pursue is this idea that the traditional uh, understanding of insider threats is perhaps wrong. So, to begin with, for those people who aren't familiar with it, give us the traditional definition, if you can, of what would constitute an insider threat. Most people think about insider threats, they think about people stealing intellectual property. So hacking yep. into computers and taking corporate information. Yep. What we're looking at is the range of ways that the people inside your organisation can actually pose a threat to your business continuity and to the health and wellbeing of your staff. So rather than the definition being wrong... I think what it is, is something that's been too narrow. Yep, okay. So it's more sort of uh, broadened for the scope of not just information, but also other forms of damage to the organisation. Uh, so the, the, the continuity of the business, the security of the business's information, but also looking at the way that um, people actually harm the human resource of the organisation and how that... Um, threatens the, the the business's reputation, um, their capacity to be able to get on with what it is they do, so their, their core business, um, and to support their staff uh, really thriving in the business place, which is fairly impossible to do when you're being um, bullied, harassed, um, attacked, undermined by colleagues um, and, and and those who are in perhaps a more senior position to you. Sure. Look, I know this is a fairly complex sort of issue and, and not so simple to pin down to single cause type answers, but typically what sorts of things trigger the kinds of behaviours that you're talking about? In my experience of working in this for about 20 years now, aggressive behaviour in particular is triggered by people feeling like there's something that's just not just. Mm -hmm. And people like things to be fair, um, understandable or predictable and 
just. So when I work with people who are aggressive and even particularly violent, um, I'm working with people who want to try and find or restore justice as they see it. Um, and uh, I, I work with people who are quite persistent in this. So sometimes it's about if I restore justice, how am I going to maintain it? Right. So this is, I guess, a different kind of challenge to what we might traditionally see within government circles where they consider the insider threat, you know, the espionage type threat, which might come down to money, ideology, coercion or ego. This is a, a different sort of thing. Yeah, or greed. Or greed, yep. yes. Um, it's one of those elements, and I think that's where we've really wanted to challenge this definition as being just too narrow. Yep. It's not inaccurate. It's a absolutely greed inspires all sorts of um, pretty damaging and dysfunctional human behaviour. But we're looking at things as well like um, workplace violence, including yep. that, um, how people are... Um, kind of socially engineering their own path through the workplace um, yeah. and p particularly in circumstances where they've got their own agenda really clear and we live in you know, a society today where people can be very clear about their own rights. I have got the right to this and I have got the right to that uh, and often they're quite accurate about what that means. The, the issue becomes in the balance of while you're right about your own um, rights and needs, what about everybody else's? You know, we, we work in groups. Human beings are naturally very social. When you arrive at work, you often arrive at work with an agenda. But what does it mean to be competent or ambitious and not harm others in the way that you get the, the tasks of your job done? Mm, okay. Traditionally, the response to insider threats, I guess, has been very much reactive. Mm -hmm. The question then begs... Uh, can we be more proactive about these things? How easy is it to try and detect insider threats and how early can it be detected? I like to, to think about that question in one of two ways. The first is around prevention yep, um, and particularly primary prevention. How do you look at the, the hazard of these um, issues and your, your employees becoming disgruntled and undermine you um, and then looking at how do you then have really good reporting and um, you know, really clear responses for this. I, I think the first premise of all of it is that there is no such thing as random behaviour. Mm -hmm. um, you sometimes hear in the media when there's uh, particularly a very violent crime, they talk about having a random attack. Um, I, I'd really challenge that as well and say often these things are a build-up. Yeah. Um, they are people can be on what we call a pathway toward violence, um, or a real pathway toward greed. So, what are the steps that are being taken? So early intervention becomes looking at the most subtle forms of these of these behaviours. So, people who are um, keeping information to themselves when it ought to be shared, people who are taking credit for projects when there was in fact a team involved in the projects. It's not, and this is, I think, sometimes one of the shifts in thinking I see in security sometimes, it's not about taking a punishment or punitive approach in this way, but it's really about taking a supportive and educative way and understanding how did that make sense for this person? Why was it 
not random? What was their, their purpose? And if the behaviour worked well, what would be the, the outcome and how can you get that in a, in a team environment? So early intervention is often about how do you create a sense of belonging to an organisation where you're going to get your needs met without hurting anybody else. Sure. So if we were to sort of develop, you mentioned before, um, you know, uh, people taking credit for projects that perhaps involved a team or, or other behaviours, if we were to develop a watch list of typical behaviours that we might see, what would that look like? The We've developed an aggression continuum. So when people are aggressive, be that verbally or even physically aggressive, what they're doing in that moment is saying, my needs are the priority. Yep. So the continuum that we've developed looked at that moment where aggression begins. And it's a muddy area that as researchers, we've struggled to know where that sits. As clinicians, we know where that sits. You know, looking at, you know, mental health and psychological functioning um, as a variable. But the, the watch list are people who are being, are using force to interact. So it could even start with simple things like you should do this, you must do that, you have to have this. So that really forceful language. Um, people who are disregarding the the kind of the, the greater good or the team environment for their own wants and needs, particularly those who are really ambitious. Um, and ambitious in a way where it's not about bringing everyone on a journey with them, it's about I want this regardless of what it is going to do to everyone else. So it's that sort of cultural look at things um, that we've seen is a really great opportunity to start to detect your insider threats early. Right. The other way that, that we have been working, um, and it's proven quite effective, is working with your complaints department. Yep. Particularly looking at um, where it's internal complaints and um, the, the association with HR. So is a person who is making a complaint about the workplace doing that in a way that is what we would call unreasonable? So they're not being, um, they're not behaving in a reasonable way. They're not asking for something that is reasonable. Um, and particularly, they don't really know what it is they want as an outcome. Yeah. They're just disgruntled, they're resentful and these sort of complaints tend to come up not at the time that the issue went wrong, but we're talking often months later. So we have our unusual group of complainers about what's going on in their workplace that are talking about things that happened three, six, even 12 months ago. So that's another way we've been able to, to kind of really quite creatively look at this group and say, who of your complainers um, are behaving in an unreasonable fashion and therefore might be undermining or, or struggling with dealing with the workplace ethically in other ways. Well, that's an interesting point that you raise because traditionally we would look at the people who are having complaints made against them, mm -hmm. not necessarily look at the people who are making the complaint. Mm -hmm. So this is really about flipping that round 180 and saying, okay, let's actually have a look at who's making the complaint and the nature of the complaint that's being made. Uh, we're looking at both. Yep. Um, when, when complaints are made, the thing is 
95% or more of people are actually doing an organisation a really important favour. Yep. Um, and uh, there's issues with making sure that we do things like really honour the bravery of people who step up and make a complaint, mm. um, particularly when it's a, an inside um, threat such as um, like a bullying complaint, um, a sexual harassment complaint. It is really difficult to, to say this is what has happened to me and incredibly brave when people do. So it's not disregarding that at all. In fact, it's, you know, I, I've worked very actively with, with making sure that those who are brave enough to step forward are, are, are well protected for doing that. What it's also doing, though, is is looking at how we um, look at those people who are not sitting in the kind of the usual areas. So I, I work with people that are known as what we call persistent and unreasonable complainers. Right. Um, so these are people, as I said, they are not telling us something that um, really supports psychological safety in our workplace. Um, and they are people who persist sometimes for years complaining about the one topic. Yep. Um, and um, the topic itself has been addressed to all reasonable standards, sometimes more than once. Um, so it's just a, it's been a, a slightly different way that, that we've been able to look. As I said, it's 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 not about usual complaint processes. It's about what are all the different ways that we can detect insider threats. And to to give you, a, I suppose, an extreme example um, where we've really started to look at this, there was a case a number of years ago now where a man was accused of harming, um, sexually harming children during outings, it was like a scout group uh, and um, the accusation was not substantiated. Um, it went through some the, the usual investigation channels um, but his reputation was ruined um, and he wanted to right his reputation. He wanted to make sure that um, he had restored his reputation yep. and he complained for a very long time about that and unfortunately when you complain... Um, it can make you look more guilty when, in fact, what it was he was saying, um, you investigated, it didn't um, bear out, I now need to get back on with what I'm doing, and it was quite difficult. Um, but then he started complaining about a whole lot of other things, um, the way that the government treated him and, and, uh, and, and the like. Um, and he escalated for a number of years, um, and there was lots of opportunities in hindsight to be able to say what's going on here for this person and how can we help them understand that the complaint process is actually aggravating them um, and that there are issues um, that a complaint process can't resolve. And he became more and more aggressive. He started threatening people, those sorts of things, and he actually ended up committing a um, mass homicide. Oh, dear. Uh, the day or a few days after um, writing a, a letter to the Queen, um, and saying to her, you are my last resort. So it's it's those escalation processes that, that we look at sometimes. Yep. I guess the question then becomes, you know, are there ways to detect this early and are there things that we should be doing often in order to try and uncover these kinds of things? And, and how early? I mean, are there questions that can be asked in a job interview, for example? I, I uh, to tell a, a short anecdote, I, I did some work with some guys from NASA a little while ago and 
one of their their team was responsible for picking astronauts, people who were going to be on the team and going to be on the space station and they were going to be there for long term. And I said to him, what's your earliest indicator as to whether or not this person's going to fit within the team? And he said, after a series of short conversations with them, obviously this is not the professional approach, but the first thing I ask myself is, would I want to go camping with this person for a long weekend? And if the answer to that's no, it's a warning sign straight away and we take a further look. In the case of job interviews, what kinds of behaviours might present themselves or what kinds of questions might we be able to ask in the early intervention stages to determine, is this the kind of person that might present a challenge to our organisation? That's an inherently difficult process. Yep. Um, and uh, I suppose a little beyond my expertise to know around the sort of the best psychological processes for recruitment. Um, the one option might be looking at why they've left past employment and how that process occurred. Yep. Um, but also looking at um, the idea of how they might not just fit in with the team, but how they might steer their own job. Um, and that, that sense of being wanting to be part of a team. But even then, I'd be very reluctant to say yeah. there is indicators at that point in time. Um, and the, 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 the problem is that, that security are always trying to balance understanding those behaviours that uh, should never be permissible yeah um and those situations that will always produce problems um and the the i suppose the difficulty there is that up to a point you have to trust yeah and behavior is is contextually defined so for example grabbing somebody in 95 percent of job situations would be considered a workplace assault yes however in a security um, or a, a position where you're trying to restrain someone who might hurt themselves or hurt somebody else, that's a perfectly reasonable behaviour. So in the security space, the, the work that we've done is supporting people to really balance how do you manage that uncertainty? Yeah. How do you give trust until the trust is seen to be being misused for personal gain? Sure. Would it be reasonable, and I get, again, I, I get that this is a, a complex situation and not easy to answer, but would it be reasonable to maybe in an interview ask people to describe a challenging situation that they'd faced in the workplace in the past and then explain how they had dealt with that situation? I think that question's got benefit for a range of reasons. I doubt it would yeah. reveal um, insider threat. And in, in part, that's because... Lots of these people, they don't arrive at the workplace waiting to fleece the place. Yeah, yeah. Um, my experience is more that particularly when people engage in, in workplace violence, um, including psychological aggression, it's because they did arrive with, uh, with, with good intentions, ambitions, a... Um, an agenda to support their own development and that of their organisation, some pride in their work. That's how most people arrive on the job. Yep. If their expectations aren't necessarily met, how do they manage that? And that's a, a, a good indicator to be managing over time. Uh, I mean, a typical example would be something like um, 
what happens when someone misses out on a promotion that they really believe that they deserve? Yeah. What happens if they feel like their innovation is not being heard and implemented? How do you see those processes of resentment and instead of focusing on my organisation, I start focusing on myself? It's the emergence of, of those sort of indicators that we've been looking at. And I think it's really important to describe the other side of this coin, which is that kind of much more cultural look at things around psychological safety. Yep. Um, when a person experiences belonging in their workplace, they experience being respected for their effort. Um, they feel safe to make a mistake. Yeah. Um, and they are willing to offer up ideas and, and have a voice and be heard, the risks around insider threats tends to reduce. Yep. You're always going to have a small group of people that are cold enough to go in with an agenda of, of, of theft or, or undermining um, and you know they're difficult to detect and uh, impossible to present. But that's n they're the exception, not the rule. Yeah. The rule is about creating a culture that is psychologically safe, um, where people can belong, and when they are disgruntled, they're pretty comfortable to step forward and say, I'm not happy how this went. Mm -hmm. How do we work with this? And, and belonging, one of the, the most toxic and excruciating human emotions to experience is shame. What happens when you put a best effort in and it doesn't go well? How do you externalise that blame? Um, what happens when your evaluation of your own uh, contribution and the quality of your work doesn't match with that of your superiors? It's yep. humiliating. And that's a real genesis of inside threats. Okay, so when we've seen this behaviour present and it's been identified that this person, for whatever reason, is following that pattern of an insider threat, whether it be psychological abuse of other people within the organisation, physical abuse, stealing information, obviously in the case of stealing information where it's more sort of, you know, legal ramifications, but that, that's not really applicable to what I'm going to ask. But when it's more the, the psychological or the physical, you know, leaning towards abuse, is it possible to rehabilitate and reintegrate these kinds of people into the back into the organisation or is it a case of once we've re hit that point, obviously it depends on the policies of the organisation, but, you know, no, they need to be moved on or no, you can rehabilitate and reintegrate? In regard to policy, just to start with that element of this, an organisation needs to be fairly clear about what does the greater good mean here. And that's not a bottom line economic question. Yep. That's about the, the health and safety of your, um, your staff. And uh, we're finding, which is fantastic, that um, organisations such as WorkSafe are being more and more proactive and clear around the psychological health and well-being of workforces and what a psychosocial hazard actually looks like. So 
that always has to be your priority. What is the greater good here? Those who have threatened or damaged the greater good, often for their own reasons, are going to go down one or two paths. And, and we're doing some research in exactly this now. One is that the the aggression that they've displayed or their, their threat to the contribution of the workplace is about, you know, basically uh, wanting to be heard in a really dysfunctional way. And if that can happen and if that scenario can be clearly boundaried and the person educated to say, look, if you've got a concern, let's try it this way, um, then they can actually be one of your greatest advocates for safety and turning things around in the workplace. Um, and if you think to the example of an employee who has been performance managed once, but not in a, um, a way that would expose them to shame, but in a way that understands the need that, that was driving that bad behaviour and supporting both the workplace learning how to hear their employees better and them trying to articulate what's bothering them in a really um, respectful way, so respectful to themselves and, and to others, those cases we have so many successes. Mm. When a person digs into a position though, that's a more complex thing. And our, we're doing some research at the moment, particularly around persistence. And what does it mean to persist in a really damaging pursuit? And that's often what bullying is about. So bullying, um, by definition, has to be repeated behaviour. So why keep doing this um, aggressive behaviour? Why escalate? Why continue to do that? And understanding the person's response to that can help. But it's about the degree that you can pull that person back from the pathway that they're on and integrate them to the, the culture of the organisation where that's going to be of benefit to everybody. And sometimes what happens is people dig in when they've got a very good point. Yeah. Um, and sometimes there are um, these cases where they're pointing out some toxicity in the culture of the organisation. And where organisations have been willing to step up and say, hey, maybe this is an element of what we need to do, which is why we have whistleblower um, provisions, mm. we see some really good success. And that's important. However, the, the cases that fail to resolve is also as a, a, a forensic psychologist where I get involved. Um, and it's then about what are you... Um, able to achieve with someone who has developed a rigidity in what they're doing. And the the view of, well, we can just remove them from the workplace is sometimes a um, failure to understand that while that might be in the greater good, have, uh, removing them from the position is actually a, a fairly guaranteed way to increase their resentment. So I, I certainly work in those cases where an ex-employee has become a resentful stalker of that organisation and, and, and vehicles such as social media 
give people all kinds of ways to then be a um, an insider threat where they have um, a now on the outside but continuing to be a threat. We'll come back to the social media thing in a second because that is a really interesting question and a, a very deep rabbit hole that you could go down. But you're right insofar as unfortunately in many organisations, once a certain pattern of destructive behaviour presents, the immediate assumption is we need to just manage this person out of the organisation following the legal pathways. The problem is in the three or four months that it can take to do that, these people can often become extremely destructive within the organisation. And it, as you pointed out, it seems to me that once you start that performance management pathway, it's almost a trigger to unchaining the tiger within. How do we strike a more effective balance between trying to performance manage potentially problematic people and not creating even greater resent and creating a poison pill scenario within our own organisation? That's sort of the inherently wicked problem here. What we do, and I, I work quite a lot with um, lawyers who specialise in this particular area, is, is that you're trying to create a balance between your legal obligations to provide a safe workplace, including managing effectively psychosocial hazards in the workplace, um, and meeting your employment obligations. So I'm not a lawyer, that's not my area of specialty, sure. but I work with lawyers where that is their area of specialty and my contribution to that is about understanding where that, that mismatch has occurred and how to support a uh, almost like a psychological shift for often for everybody yep. where the the message behind that problematic and dysfunctional behaviour is heard um, and the person is encouraged to be able to communicate in a more effective but very boundaried way. Yeah. Social media. Mm-hmm. Wow. Okay. <laughs> Here we go. Um, I mean... I guess so far what we've discussed as far as the insider threat are people who are either verbally, psychologically or physically abusive within the workplace. But social media takes on an entirely different dimension because even though it doesn't happen necessarily in the workplace, it can still be considered to the letter of the law, the workplace, if it involves people from work within a group that they all frequent. I mean, this is a, an entirely different form of abuse that we're starting to see emerge because people will say things from the safety of a keyboard that they would never, ever, ever say face-to-face -face in the workplace. Our keyboard uh, warriors. Our keyboard warriors to the, to the hilt. And also they will express views and ideas that sometimes they don't necessarily understand are really offensive to other people. How, uh, talk me through some of the sorts of scenarios you're seeing from a social media point of view that a lot of organisations might not yet realise, hey, A, this is a problem from an insider threat point of view, and B, from a, a, a psychological and legal point of view, this is a real danger to your organisation. Social media is an incredible communication tool. Mm. It has enabled individuals and organisations to have a stage that we've never known 
before. Like the reach is incredible. Yep. As with everything, there's a an advantage to that and a sinister side mm. to that. Where I see the greatest threat is in two particular areas. One is the sense of anonymity. Yeah. People feel like they can do and say more because there is a lesser degree of accountability because people can very simply use pseudonyms and you know groups and those sorts of things to hide identity. Also when you're posting these things, particularly if it's we see these things happening often later at night. Um, where these posts are made at 11, 12 o'clock at night, those sorts of things, maybe with a glass of wine on board, um, and people feel brave because they're in a room by themselves, so there's not that immediate feedback that an interpersonal interaction has. And that feels more anonymous, mm. um, even when it's not. Yep. The other, I suppose, issue that we look at is the the desired outcome of that behaviour. So it's there's lots of threats in this space. So I'm going to ruin the reputation of the organisation. I'm going to out you for all your horrible behaviour. I'm going to do this. I'm so it's a very threatening space. And f- as a forensic psychologist, that enables me to, to go in and forensically look at what is it they're aiming at here? What is the desired outcome from their point of view, and that gives me a clue around what does justice mean for them. Mm-hmm. What's the kind of the 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 issue that they're trying to address, albeit incredibly dysfunctionally and damaging, and that enables me to get a sense of what's motivating the behaviour, and then that in itself can then provide some some clues and some information as to how do we provide some some really effective intervention and remediation here like how do you ask someone to stop sure what is the difference between venting and plotting and how do we address the two differently the the model that that I like to use in that in that regard is um, what we call the pathway to violence model it's where you start with having a grievance and you start to form an idea that that grievance could be addressed via using aggression and other problem behaviour. Mm-hmm. Um, I wrote my PhD on people who threatened to kill yep. because I was really interested in why would somebody say such a thing if that was what was in their mind why don't they do that? So how do we use these sort of statements as an indicator of harm? And do they have any indications um, and and risk? So venting happens often in that space. So it's an initial reaction. Um, it's uh, often quite emotional. And that in of itself is not an excuse to behave in a way that causes others to feel offended, frightened or even traumatised, be that psychologically or physically. Having said that, lots of people vent. Yep. Um, 
be looking at and as a forensic psych what I'm wanting to assess is from that venting, where's the commitment to action? Yep. What is the risks that they're going to take that venting and see it as a viable pathway toward achieving their version of justice? Mm. So instead of ranting, are they then planning? Yep. What about... Are they starting to research what it might mean to articulate their plan? What are they then doing to kind of practice and do some behavioural tryouts? What does it mean in terms of um, then moving from threatening, having a grievance, researching violence, planning violence and then enacting violence? And in all of those stages, people can be derailed and they can step back and say, you know what, this is not the way. Mm. And... For some people, thinking about those things helps them feel incredibly powerful. Yeah. When someone's frightened of you, there's a, there's a sense of power that goes on with that. So how does that get then, as if I'm working with someone in an organisation and I have the opportunities to talk with them, how do I help pull them back from an idea that while they feel powerful, it's going to result in consequences for the person that they're intending to hurt and for themselves. So I'm looking for those clues that people are turning their venting into a plan. And when it comes to planning, as soon as someone feels like there is a an issue um, where there's a commitment to enact violence, that becomes a police matter. Yep. Okay. I'll give this... As my final question, because I, I know we're sort of getting short on time, again, a fairly controversial area. In your experience and opinion, do you believe that organisations from a security point of view should be monitoring the web activity of people in the workplace from the point of view of where are they going, what are they looking at, who are they visiting? To answer that question needs to have a clear balance between privacy sure and safety yep as a general rule no yep uh, the web is a pure version of chaos yep. you name it you find it yep um so for example conspiracy theorists have always existed yep now they can find each other yep but so what what's you know what's the problem with the the echo chamber Having said that, there are many organisations that have got um, the idea of creating psychological safety and physical safety in their organisations by monitoring how their employees are using IT resources of the organisation. So yep. the, the simplest example would be the employee who um, accesses pornography from their work computer. Yep. Um, and that's just contravention of a policy which is... I think an important step. So there's a uh, those policies create a culture that you do have to be careful about what you're doing mm. and what you're looking at when you're on work time and engaging yep. in a work activity. Yep. More than that, though, you have to have a rationale I, if you want to move beyond um, IT usage policies and start to look at what people are doing. How is that going to be of benefit to creating safety? And there, that's that kind of look at that, that tipping point between privacy and safety. Yep. I guess 
the point that I'm alluding to, that if we have a look at the person that carried out the acts in uh, Christchurch earlier this year, had there been some indications in the workplace that he was saying perhaps some inappropriate things, to come back to your point earlier about these things are a journey, mm-hmm. never usually a single point destination, had there been indications that he had said inappropriate things in the workplace and then someone had perhaps had a look at maybe the internet history, and I'm not suggesting that this would have predicted it, but possibly could they have looked at that and said, okay, based on what's been said in the workplace and where we're seeing internet activity occurring here, this is something that really needs to have a a closer look. Um, I can't comment particularly on the Christchurch case, however, but as an example of um, the activity generally speaking... The internet certainly provides a whole lot of breadcrumbs about a person's views, who they're identifying with, um, their allegiances, their goals. Uh, it's amazing what people um, post on the yep. internet. So it's from a security perspective, it would be difficult to uh, not use an information source. Yeah. Um, and it would be difficult to justify not doing that. Um, and what we're trying to do, or what security is trying to do, um, and the, particularly the field of threat management can really help, is that you're, you're painting a picture. Yeah. Um, and the internet can help you do that. However, I, I think the caution here is extreme cases always make bad law and bad policy. Yeah. Because there's not that many yep. Christchurch shooters out there, thankfully. Yep. Um, so to be able to translate the need to do something like that where there's a whole lot of other um, intelligence that would suggest this person is a concern and on a pathway toward violence won't translate well to most people. So that's where I think that rationale between privacy and safety, between our, our, our right to be able to um, use the internet as works for us and our obligation to behave in a way that is not going to damage ourselves or anybody else, that needs to be articulated in particular cases. And a policy or even a law is going to work well for the majority of circumstances, but not the extremes. Um, they, They enable us to have much more specialist skills. And in those sorts of cases, that's where this pathway model is, I I think, very effective um, at being able to see who is giving us a whole lot of breadcrumbs in their behaviour at the workplace, their behaviour on the internet, the the kind of sense of unquiet and um, unrest that colleagues should feel really comfortable in reporting. You know, this guy's just a bit weird and behaving in a way that's just bothering us yep. um, if, if you've got an organization that that is uh, where those sorts of reports are um, encouraged but not in a way to get people in trouble which is what yep. I hear a lot is oh I'm a bit worried about this guy but I don't want to get him in trouble yeah um, instead I want to be able to help yeah um, if, if that's part of your, your your culture then that's where your early intervention is is, is going to work. So I guess in closing, it all begins then with really clearly articulated and defined policies and procedures that very clearly state to people, 
this is what's okay, this is what's not okay, these are the kinds of things that we, you know, if people want to get upset about the fact that you're looking at their internet history, it's like, well, we said quite clearly in our policies that we would from time to time where necessary monitor those kinds of things. So having really clearly set out policies and procedures that are well explained to people upon onboarding. Where your policies and procedures are an expression of your culture. Yeah. Um, so those who do get upset, instead of reiterating policies, it's about how do we bring you back into a culture where if you've got a problem, a grievance or a complaint, that is brought to us as early as possible and we will hear you and do what we can in a really boundaried way to bring you along on, on, on this particular journey rather than leave you festering and stewing in the corner and building up that resentment and giving reasons to become an insider threat. Dr Warren, thank you very much for your time today. If people want to find out more about you or perhaps even talk to you, how do they do so? Just the Code Black website. Yep. Um, or um, I also am an academic at Monash University, so I'm in the Department of Psychiatry there. Fantastic. And ladies and gentlemen, if you would like other podcasts like this one, don't forget to check out the ASIO website. You can find these podcasts on Blurberry, iTunes, Spotify, Google, and all the places that you find great podcasts. Thank you very much again for your time. 